Good evening, listeners. It's March 10th, 2019, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. And I'm Marcus Weinman. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at Oregon State University and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined <laughs> by Jason Sarkozy-Forfinski from nice. the Department of Anthropology, and he is exploring how students are othered on campus and in conversations about accents or just in their linguistic landscape. Glad to have you on the air. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. So othering on campus, what do you mean by that? Well, othering can kind of be understood as, um, I like to think of it as kind of like in-group versus out-group. So you have a lot of uh, pronouns flying around like we versus they. So you might other someone on a national level, you know, we uh, Americans versus the Chinese, for example. That's one way to other. Right. And what about a linguistic landscape and how does how does the linguistic landscape play into that? Yeah, so the linguistic landscape can be the visual landscape. So what we see around, especially um, so linguistic referring to in regards to language. So um, looking around, seeing different signs or postings around. Um, it could also be the languages that you hear um, or the language that you hear around campus. So um, walking around OSU as you both do. I'm sure you've yes. <laughs> heard different languages being spoken and um, so that's kind of part of your linguistic landscape. And, yeah. So just as I'm moving through and maybe I see uh, a sign that says restrooms yeah. um, and then I know where I'm going or I am maybe in the Memorial Union or on the library on campus and I overhear a conversation that's maybe in a different language or maybe in English. Yeah. All right. And yeah. so how do you study a linguistic landscape and kind of what people's perception of their landscape is and uh, like what you do with that information? Yeah, so um, the linguistic landscape portion of my research is just kind of uh, one, um, I don't, I don't want to say a small portion, but it's it's kind of an aside to the, the, the overall research. But uh, one thing that we've kind of noticed is, you know, given that uh, you hear a bunch of different people on campus speaking different languages, um, different accents in English, for example, uh, and you walk around campus, you'll notice that um, there's kind of a, a heavy leaning towards signs and signage and stuff in, in English. And so one, one of the things that uh, my research group um, and I, there's, there's five of us, um, we kind of chose five different hubs on campus. So we chose like McNary, Dining Hall, Valley Library, MU, and we go around, we, we pick up just one kind of main area where a lot of people will gather. And we go around, we take a picture of every single sign that we see. And that could be a sign that says, you know, um, emergency exit. Uh, it could be a sign that says restroom. 
And what we do is we quantify that. So we we look at so each each sign has a different function, and so we look at okay, what language is that sign in, and what function does that have? So is it a public safety sign? And so what we're basically trying to understand is, given that OSU back in 1856, before uh, when OSU was first uh, when we first became an academy, and before the indigenous folks were um, moved and displaced onto reservations, there were 36 language varieties that were spoken where we are right now. And so how do you go from those 36 varieties to having like English dominance in a little over, no, I, I can't do math that, that quick, but. So, <laughs> um, and what was your next question after that? I'm sorry, Kristen. Oh, right. You look at the signs and you quantify that. And then how do you decide or understand how people are interacting in that environment? Yeah, so um, I guess one thing that those the the fact that you know there's English dominance on campus tells us um, you might wonder. Okay, so when is um, other like non English languages? When are they you know acceptable? Because you, you'll hear stories, and this is something that I, um, I find in my research. There is a trend. That's not the right word, but um, I I, I want to say that it is status quo to um, kind of tell people to not speak their language in certain contexts. And so um, what I'm looking at, so in relation to that and linguistic landscape is when you have folks from other parts of the world that come here speaking different languages and sometimes they're told not to speak their language given the context, um, and then they don't really see their language anywhere else, that kind of has an othering feeling, right? Right, they're not speaking English maybe all the time and they they feel comfortable speaking other languages as well But all the messages around them and the things that they hear say that like this is how you Move about the campus. This is how you navigate the campus and this is yeah. you know what you're hearing and what you're here to learn Maybe on yeah, this campus. and the expectations, right? right? And so if we look at um, And a lot of folks don't know this and a lot of people that I interview don't know this But the United States doesn't have an official language Oregon doesn't have an official language. There are 36 yes. other states yeah. that have um, English as an official language. But Oregon, Oregon doesn't. Oregon is not. There is a representative that's always trying to put it yeah. on the ballot. But And do we have success. a uh, language of Oregon State University, would you say? That's one thing that we're trying to find out. And unofficially, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> unofficially, you know, you'll hear that. Um, I was speaking to these these two students, and they were telling me how when they're in their chemistry lab, um, the TA who is like sitting at the desk and everybody's working in pairs and like these two Chinese speakers are working together, the TA is like, you still need to speak in English. You know, consider it as training. Wow. And they they tell me how that makes them feel and that doesn't make them feel good. And right. they and they, under, they also understand, okay, yes, I'm here to train, to practice my English train, quote unquote, trained in English, but this content I'm doing, I don't really need English for necessarily. Like I can, I can kind of, I can talk about this with my partner in Chinese and kind of get the gist of it. So. Yeah, you can learn it maybe, maybe easier in your own language as well. Yeah, I kind of think of it as like a, a we like to call scaffolding in, in language learning, right? So like a, a structure that helps you build up to a proficiency in the target language. So it sounds like in your interviews with people on campus there seems to be a, a pretty profound impact of this linguistic landscape that both native English speakers and people who don't speak English as a first language, but are still trying to learn it. You know, there, there's an impact on everybody. 
with how predominant English is. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about some of your feedback from the people you've interviewed in terms of how they perceive both themselves, their native language, and sort of their experiences in trying to learn English and sort of acclimate to this English predominant landscape. Sure. So um, I was just speaking to someone yesterday, and this reminds me of a, a really um, disturbing story. Um, did I say yesterday? Just the other last week. And um, this uh, student, is a student here in atmospheric sciences, um, and they were talking about how, because um, I, I asked them in the interview, you know, like, do you speak? Do you speak? Do you feel comfortable? Or like, do you? How often do you speak Japanese? Um, on campus and they're, they're like, well, actually I don't, I try not to speak Japanese on campus. And I'm like, okay, why? Well, why would you not, why would you avoid speaking your first language? Um, and they told me that they don't feel comfortable speaking Japanese on campus because, um, and then they kind of go into a story of how they have these friends who are outside of Dixon um, and they were, they're Japanese friends. And so whether they, you know, look like a certain a certain way, so we might racialize them, right? As Asian, um, they were standing outside Dixon talking, um, and the car comes up and with several people in the car, and they in they were identified as white men, um, yelling racial slurs out at these people and um, spraying. They they squirted like sriracha on them or something and said, you know, you know, go home, you know, insert racial slur. That's unbelievable. Yeah, so it's yeah. so this this woman is uh, hearing indirectly, but that someone has had a bad experience being overheard in their own language mm. on campus where we don't have an official language and we don't have any people policing which language we which yeah. language we use. Um, but we do have people policing it, but it's unofficial yeah, policing so, policies, <laughs> right? So it's kind yeah. of these uh, folks that have biases about the language that they hear around them, yeah. uh, maybe in their their white American English speakers in the United States. And so maybe they feel that they have a right to what they're hearing, I right. guess. And it makes other people feel feel differently. And also like that was harassment, obviously. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so what kind of effect do you think that would have on someone who is trying to learn here and move about in our community? Well, definitely from this person's perspective, um, um, they feel very isolated and um, they also kind of in their own personal experiences talk about how um, in classes, for example, when it's time to work in groups, they feel like nobody wants to work with them. And, uh, and um, they've, they've actually, uh, so in regards to their, their English, um, they've had a professor tell them like in front of the whole class, like in, in a very embarrassing situation, telling them, um, yeah, your English isn't good enough. You need to improve your English kind of kind of thing. And that, of course, made her feel horrible. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, yeah, like, what am I doing wrong? You know, and this person's been speaking English most of their life. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, you know, this speaker was kind of wondering in the context of that story you just told, you know, what am I doing wrong? It almost seems like there's a framework from their perspective of what is right and what is correct. You know, do yeah. people who are trying to learn English as a second language, like, do they view English as like you know, white American English is like the ideal? Is that something they're trying to aspire to? Are they trying to sort of completely assimilate into the linguistic landscape? I or? wouldn't say that. Actually, what I found in my focus, one of the focus groups I did last um, 
um, a couple months back. Uh, they, I interviewed uh, three folk, three people from um, two were Chinese speakers and one was a Thai speaker. And um, when I asked them about, you know, their desires of like what kind of language, the kind of English, how they would like to sound. Um, so get, to give a little context in this focus group, I have, um, I do a, what's called a verbal guise test. And so I have, uh, in this case, there was eight different people reading um, different excerpts. One was in about GPSs and the other one was about coral reefs. And these, <laughs> these people are from different places in the world. And so um, a couple of them uh, were white speakers from the UK and the, the US. Um, and then there was a speaker from India and a speaker from the United Arab Emirates, um, someone from Malaysia. And so they go through and they listen to these, uh, like an 18 minute clip um, of this reading. And then they have to say, okay, and I asked them, so where do you think this person is from? Um, and how did you get, you know, reach that conclusion? And, and then they have a couple of, uh, like a, a Likert scale of, you know, can you rate this person unpleasantness, uh, fluidity, different kinds of things, mm -hmm. um, correctness. And so then that kind of sprung up conversation. And so, um, you know, they, they identified one of the speakers. Oh, well, you know, they're, they're American, right? right. They, they didn't say white America. They said American. Right. Um, and then they said, and then I asked, okay, so how do you know? And they're like, oh, well, he sounds like, you know, the, the person, he sounds like my professors, <laughs> for example. <laughs> and I said, okay, so how do you know? Like, you know, and they, 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 sound like, they sound like you. And I'm like, okay, what is, what is that? A native speaker. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Right. Um, and so we kind, of, we kind of get to it. And so basically um, we get to attitudes real quick. And so we learn that they're like, well, you know, my English isn't good. You know, you hear a lot of that self-deprecation and, and, and accent, right? And also it's important to know that linguists, especially in my camp, so linguistic anthropology, sociolinguistics, linguists believe that everyone has an accent and that when accents are placed on a hierarchy, and those are obviously socially constructed hierarchies, and so values are, are, are given to certain accents. And then people believe them and legitimize them and perpetuate those, those beliefs. And I'm finding that these students do the same thing. So they're putting so-called native speaker English on a very, like native speaker, white English especially, on a, the top of the hierarchy. On a pedestal. On yeah. a pedestal, yeah. So it seems like it's another language, uh, or sorry, another layer of yeah. language where it's not just what you're saying. You could be saying, you could have perfectly fluent English, as in you're using the sentence structure that is taught in English, native English-speaking places, perhaps, and then the sounds, or I'm sorry, the, the words and the, your vocabulary and then how you've put together your sentences sounds like English. But now it's not only that you can communicate in an effective way, but also like the accent. So it's another mm -hmm. layer of understanding that it, it kind of is like the appearance of language or something that you can tell something about someone by the way that they speak English and not just what they know how to say. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm kind of piggybacking on that last one because this is something we've touched on in our previous discussion, but is it possible to remove an accent? Yeah, so um, there's a whole, and I think I mentioned this is a whole industry. I don't, I don't know the the price tag behind that industry, but I want probably multi-million dollar industry um, of this uh, idea of accent reduction. And you could just uh, um, Google that sometime and, and kind of 
um, see what that consists of. But basically, um, yeah, there's, uh, um, I know folks in Miami, friends of mine who go to accent reduction classes because they, you know, they come from a Spanish speaking household and their uh, English is flowered with, um, you know, uh, Spanish phonetics. And so, um, they'll say things like, you know, like, um, my fam, my family, maybe like, uh, they'll raise their, the I to an E like, yeah. like you would in, in Spanish. And so, um, that's something that they want to get rid of. And they're told, and some, some of these folks, you know, go into acting and they're told, you know, you need to get rid of that if you want to, you know, kind of get this kind of role. And wow. then they're tokenized, you know, in other senses because they have that accent. And so they get certain roles only usually. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think I typecast into that. Yeah. So, and that you have to have like a dynamic way of speaking if you're going to have success in, in acting or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. You have to sort of be able to play both sides of that coin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned you, know, you were talking with some folks that you knew back from Miami. You know, tell us a little bit more about your past. You know, how did you actually come into studying language and linguistics in the first place? You know, that's not necessarily something that most people kind of looking at what you've done on paper would yeah. really expect to be a traditional path into to research, so to speak. Yeah. So um, kind of like why I got interested in this, yeah, yeah. Like this what, project. What really got you <laughs> in the field in the first place? Um, yeah, I just, I guess I've always kind of, since high school, before high school maybe even, I just, um, I, I loved, I, I found out that like learning Spanish, being from a very rural town in Michigan and um, having some exposure to Spanish at, at, Spanish at school and then um, later on having my siblings marry into Spanish-speaking families, um, really kind of, I, I, I realized it was something I was good at, it, it, you know, learning Spanish at least. Um, and then, you know, I went through the whole pipeline, like, okay, time to go to college, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, that expectation kind of put on me and a little bit from my family. Um, and then I was like, okay, what do I major in? And I was like, well, what am I good at? Okay, well, I'm good at Spanish. So maybe I'll major in Spanish, but what did I want to do with Spanish? Who knows? Um, but um, I was taught that, you know, oh, study Spanish because, you know, you can travel outside of the U.S., you know, instead of thinking like, oh, yeah, this is the second largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. I could just use Spanish here, right. you know, to communicate with folks. Um, but I didn't learn that, on, you know, until till later on. But um, so in undergrad and in, I've, I've been a perpetual student, I think I'm in the 26th grade, <laughs> I've, I've counted, so <laughs> including kindergarten. <laughs> um um, just being part of that um, internationalization of higher education process, so bringing folks from outside, from overseas to the U.S., you know, for different reasons, um, and uh, having and so being a Spanish major, you're in class with um, people who are learning Spanish as a second language and people who speak Spanish as a first language. Um, so I just been around folks that um, are kind of from different parts of the world, and that's kind of um, if you look at my basket of friends. I mean, they're just from all over the place. Um, and so listening to their experiences, learning English and, um, uh, yeah, so I, I've, I've been hearing these, I've been hearing stories like the ones I've been telling, you know, for, seems like forever. So, so. that you, they feel othered because of their accent or they feel that they cannot speak their language, the language that they're most comfortable with, the language where they don't have an accent, perhaps. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. And so how did you come to, so when you decided you were going to get a PhD, um, how did you decide to look specifically at the language on university campuses or the, the language and the treatment of students? So people who are outside of their comfort zone, maybe they're trying to learn a lot and they are kind of forced out of having a comfortable scaffolding around their learning as in like the language that they're comfortable with. Yeah. Well, I actually didn't come into this current project until, you know, probably a year ago or so. Um, I was kind of, uh, with my previous advisor, I was, um, looking more at, um, um, immigration in general. Um, and I was actually going to work with, um, some, uh, with a refugee organization up in, in Portland. Um, uh, I didn't have a very specific research question at that time. So, um, but with my new advisor, who's also a linguist, he, he kind of uh, helped me uh, narrow it down mm-hmm. quite a bit. So that's kind of how I got to the, uh, specifically with, um, and, and we, we like to use the term internationalized students okay. um, instead of international students, just to recognize that it's something that is, that is, a, it is constructed in our discourse and our conversations. You know, if you think of it like, uh, um, students who are, you know, international students, you know, to use that term, if coming here, even maybe they study for four years, maybe they, they decide they want to continue living here in the U.S. or maybe go to another place or go back to their country of origin or whatever. Um, it's a very ephemeral, very short kind of lived identity. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but it's something that has a lot of consequences here. If you think about internationalized students and how much they pay in tuition, you know, especially undergraduate students compared mm-hmm. to um, domesticized students, if you want to use that term as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was just wondering. Um, well, I want to go back to something that you said. So sure. you're still kind of, or you, you had a change in your graduate time. So you uh, started out kind of looking at something else and Mm -hmm. then decided to switch into like a more linguistic focus, which is what your background really is. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about what that was like to kind of do a switch in graduate school? Yeah. um, So um, I had an advisor who was kind of like pushing me away from linguistics. And I think that was... uh, um, personally, I think they didn't really see a lot of value in linguistic anthropology. Um, and so I can, that now that I look back and, and I see like that push, pushing me away from it kind of makes sense now. And they wanted me to look, focus more on like, you know, cultural anthropology. And I was going to kind of look at, you know, integration, two-way integration. Um, but uh, my current advisor is like, you know, do what you're good at, do what you have experience with. And so I'm still, I mean, I've learned I'm still learning a ton all the time. Never, mm-hmm. never, never, never stop learning. But um, yeah, the, the, how was the transition? You know, um, I think unnecessarily bumpy. Right. It didn't really have to be bumpy. <laughs> um, I do have a little bit of a flair for the dramatic. So I think I, I'm going to take some responsibility <laughs> for that. But um, it was also uh, the way that, uh, you know, interdepartmental politics and dynamics, interpersonal dynamics and stuff. I definitely played a big role in, in my, in my uh, frustration and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and stuff and without going into too much detail. 
Um, but I'm in a really good place right now. Yeah, but so, you were you were here and you're here to learn. And then uh, yeah. you kind of felt that you came into graduate school with a different idea, perhaps, than the path that you were being steered down. And then you had to like really put yourself in a vulnerable vulnerable position to really try and get back to what you're passionate about. Yeah. But I think that I can commend you on that. That 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 is definitely something that has to happen to be successful in graduate school. You have to be studying what you love and yeah. what you really want to know about because it's a long haul folks mm-hmm. it sure is <laughs> so so definitely it doesn't have to be painful yeah <laughs> and speaking of like you know i don't know if i mentioned the word discourse so far but uh so in our in the way we talk about things you know you hear different people um you i a lot of the discourse that floats around in between graduate students so you know in conversations what are the, some of the ideas that float around is that you know um yeah, always, graduate school kind of has to be painful. And, you know, my right, yeah. my advisor's like, it doesn't have to be painful, <laughs> you know? And so I really, I really appreciate that support. From, yeah, from it's not home. a rite of passage. It can, it can yeah. be enjoyable if you actually try and make it that way. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I feel like certain people have this idea of like, if you're not suffering, you're not doing it right. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I don't like that. I want to, let's change that discourse, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. And maybe that's something to say about your research, too, is like it doesn't like being an internationalized student and kind of being willing to put yourself outside of your comfort zone in that way and and really learn from a very different perspective than what you're used to. Like it doesn't have to be painful. Would you say that that is kind of like or at least like learning about about being an internationalized student and what that is like? Maybe that can help to change the discourse about internationalized students? Is well, that something that you're hoping to achieve? I think it's achieve? something that we, yeah, something that we have to do. I mean, so th- what I'm trying to argue is that the internationalization process, excuse me, is connected to the larger racialization process. So racism as an institutional tool that is, you know, very, you know, live and well, in uh, U.S. society, in different places in the world. It looks different here in the U.S. Um, and it looks different here at OSU, um, but very similar to in other places. But um, uh, so where I was going with that, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, so as far as, as, far as um, accents are concerned, like I was talking earlier about this hierarchization, this hierarchy of, of accents. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in order for us to, in order for us to like not other people who speak English with a non-white accent, we have to, people who like me, who was racialized as white, um, we have to kind of, we have to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We have to basically give up that privilege. We have to, we have to say, hey, you know what? My English is no better than this person's English. Right. You, know. you kind of have to recognize maybe the bias that you have just from being a person in the United States that was uh, raised in the United States or has lived in the United States for a long time and recognize that maybe you have this bias. But that's really unfair because there is no like correct way to speak English because it is a language that's used by many, many many different cultures with many accents yeah and we all have you know we all have accents right and so um what's interesting um there's an author who just recently um passed uh, jane hill she talks about uh, white public space and in white public spaces 
Um, so with the, with the connection of racialization, in white public space, the racialized body, so the, the non-white body, is highly monitored for um, deviation. So, um, you know, Kristen and Marcus, y'all speak English differently, you know, but yeah. um, if there was a person of color, we might listen to, okay, oh, wow, they, sound, they say that word differently, or they, you know, they don't use this verb here and there. But we often don't pay attention to, you know, um, white bodies in that case, in that sense. And so that's kind of think what happens on campus um, with internationalized folks is that there's a kind of the focus is, a, is the, the attention is on them. And it's like really hard focus, like ma- yeah. waiting for them to make some kind of mistake so we can be like, OK, well, that's not right. Yeah. And it comes with that expectation that they have to change. Yeah. And that's not to say that we don't you know, have that with other white folks. Cause we do, you know, we, I, I mean, how many times have you maybe even thought, Oh, that person sounds uneducated. I'm guilty of it, you know, because it's, you know, we're doing our job cause we were taught to do that. Right. Even you know, some in society, people, maybe people who are younger than you and you kind of hear the slang that they're using, that's like slightly different than your generational slang. Yeah. And then you kind of have this, like they're speaking wrong because they're right. younger than me or something yeah. like that. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah. That's kind of what I mean by that. So it's kind of, we have to, even though those, because I know when I hear my little niece, sometimes, you know, I, she's not so little anymore. Wow, time flies. <laughs> um, some things she would say, I'd be like, ah. But then I have to like step back and be like, okay, what am I doing when I do that? You know, what what kind, what are the effects of that? Like I'm really putting this person in a, a bad position, you know, to be like, oh, you know, they don't sound mature. They don't sound smart. They don't sound, you know, and then there's lots of negative consequences that come with that. Yeah, so we just have to be more aware ourselves of our implicit biases and sort of thoughts and attitudes towards language and people who may speak it differently. So that yeah. way we can sort of adjust that and in, in the process, maybe affect a, a greater change in the status quo of how language is sort of integrated into our landscape, both here at OSU yeah. and elsewhere. Yeah, if we want to have a more equitable equitable world, yeah, you know, that, that I think that's something that we definitely have to do. And we, it has to be a conscious change. We have to be aware of it. Um, and I think linguistic landscape could have a role in it. Like what if linguistic landscape, what if the linguistic landscape looked different? Like what if there were signs in different languages? Would that make people realize, oh, this is a multilingual campus. You know, maybe we should accept other languages. Would, would, would that happen? I don't know. I don't have the answer, but um, something interesting to explore. Yeah, that's an interesting thought is if we are all more accepting of different languages or just like not othering people because they have an accent. Mm-hmm. What benef- what benefits do we get as being international student internationalized students ourselves from being on a multilingual campus? And so yeah. how can we how can we think about the changes that will that will come? Yeah, I was just talking with a friend the other day and she was talking about this this idea of token diversity where it's like we want people to look different, but we want them to think the same. Um, I mean, she's using we in a, in a very sarcastic way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this big call for, and that's part of the internationalization of higher education, the international bringing the, so into OSU was built in 2008. Um, and you know, for a lot of different reasons. One of those reasons, bringing in folks um, from overseas to help, you know, globalize campus, right? And this is something that you hear um, people talk a lot, um, talk about. So globalizing campus, um, and that's often to benefit the American student, right? right? So that the American student doesn't have to leave uh, Oregon or, 
you owe OSU to get that global experience, right? Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, you those folks are coming here and they're told not to speak their language. Like I, I didn't tell the story about uh, one of my friends who worked at the dining hall and um, was speaking in Chinese with her coworkers and was told not to speak Chinese. And the person said, the, the manager said, well, it's because I need to know it. I need to, I need to speak English because I need to know what you're saying in case you need help. And then later went on to confess that also they didn't know if the person was talking bad about them or not, right? <laughs> Sounds like a way to get talked bad about. And so it's, yeah. all, it's also so that white public space, you're monitoring, you're heavily monitoring the people of color so those Chinese speakers, um, and then think of, and, and she told me herself, she's like, I have coworkers who are white and they talk to each other in English and they're talking about, you know, they're talking about nothing to do with work. Right. They're having other personal they're having conversations. They're other personal conversations, but they're doing it in English and the person, the manager can understand. So it's not a problem. Yeah. The content yeah. is not the issue. The and content doesn't tell is them the to issue. stop talking. Exactly. Right. You need to talk about work so I can understand if you need help. No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So um, this group of people that I'm working with, one of the things we want to do um, is, you know, because I'm in an applied anthropology program. So I, I, I take that to mean that um, make change. And not coming from me, but coming from this group that I'm working with. And, um, you know, they really want to, you know, uh, create policy that allow that basically hinders certain people from enforcing these unofficial language policies. Excuse me. Right. So like trying to understand what's going on and then make sure that or maybe uh, facilitate policies that stop that practice practice yeah. from happening and stopping people from like othering yeah internationalized students yeah and i think we just i mean it's i think our first step is basically to create a a, a campus-wide conversation about this and you know and, and um and for those in those high up folks listening to this program you know we're going to hold you accountable for um listening to us because it's really important yes yeah. absolutely and then maybe if the, those policies are in place, we can actually start to see the changes and what those look like or what kind of benefits may actually come from that that face of globalizing campus. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're getting getting ready to wrap up our show. But uh, Jason, what is next for you? Oh, wow. After your Ph.D.? I know. It's Such a dun, good, dun, dun, dun. Have you thought dun, that far? Dun, dun. Yeah. What do you think? I'm just kind of... Uh, Focusing on finishing up, right. <laughs> can't blame me. But um, I have lots of lots of projects, lots of ideas in mind. Um, I don't know what I'll do next, but I kind of want to. Um, so I I I taught English abroad in China and different places in Japan, um, and um, I kind of, you know, going from the framework of like you know American imperialism and spreading American imperialism. American world order. If you listen to George W. Bush kind of talk about the new American order that we need to implement across the the globe, um, kind of understanding my own role in that without being aware of it as an English teacher in China, you know, because I I kind of remember a a, a situation where I was, I um, remember hearing my students be like, oh, I'm from China. I like pandas. And I was like, oh, no, it's China, panda. But if you, you know, like they were taught to say China and Pander because, you know, there's different English accents that that's how you say them. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And so um, uh, I would love to kind of interview and understand um, how other English teachers are kind of spreading that 
Right. I'm using the term American imperialism. I mean, other people can use different frameworks, but that's the one that I'm going to latch on to. Or so. maybe like perpetuating a certain bias that like white American English is like the English. Right. Okay. And I would love to like implement programs where, you know, maybe students can stop self-denigrating when it comes to their their own English. Right. But it's, mm -hmm. it's going to be a lot of work because that comes from, you know, a variety of different a angles, variety of different angles, teachers and, right. you know, um, peers, peers. But I think, you know, it's our job as Americans, especially people who are white and speak white American English. Um, I know there's many of those different kinds of Englishes, but the one that we're speaking right now, for example, um, I think it starts with us kind of giving up that privilege and being like, okay, my English is no better than yours. Maybe it takes some patience on our end to really try to listen more carefully to folks that have accents that we're not used to hearing. Yeah. And we call that taking on the communicative burden, okay. which I, I really like that. Yeah. That concept. And it's really just like listening to someone and like not and like not losing your patience and be like, oh, God, I, I'm this person has an accent that I can't understand. OK, I'm not I'm, I'm going to try to get out of this conversation as quick as I can. Well, no, just stop a moment and just, you know, give that person time, yeah. I guess. That's a, that's a start. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Sound yeah. advice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on the topic of advice, something that we do on our show every time is we actually ask our graduate student guests for their advice. So Jason, what is your advice and what is your audience for this advice? So I, we kind of um, talked about this before. And so my audience would definitely be graduate students who have to form some form of committee um, to do their graduate work. Um, I would suggest, um, you know, if you need to change your advisor, um, it doesn't have to be a painful process. Um, um, if that person is not helping you along, if that person's, if, if that person is like holding you hostage with funding, you know, find other ways to get funding if you need it. Um, easier said than done. Right. You yeah. know, for, for a lot of different folks, but, um, I would I like to kind of normalize that process of, of changing advisors because it doesn't have to be as dramatic as mine was. Right. And there's a kind of idea in graduate, graduate school. If you come here and you're expected to be under the, you know, advisement of a certain person that you kind of give up a little bit of agency in that yeah. you are their student and you are going to perpetuate their legacy in a kind of way. And really, it's your life still. Yeah. <laughs> and it's something that a lot of us forget is that we are leading our or we don't forget it but it there's definitely not a lot of things in place to allow us to um or there's a kind of a stigma about us mm -hmm. building our own way and a lot of graduate students can feel trapped in that way yeah, yeah. and i feel like it's you know it happens more than more than oh definitely more than it doesn't yeah. Yeah. yeah it's more about who has the the courage to kind of step up and admit it that there yeah. might be yeah. an issue and to actually work towards fixing it right and i went to in my case i went to the director of my school and, and, uh, and, uh, they helped me out. They were like, we're going to make this happen. Yep. You know, so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. It might just be as simple as asking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's good yeah. To, to have the courage to kind of take that. Yeah. Take the, the vulnerability back. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. all right. And then our last tradition is to have you provide a song that we're going to play for you, uh, to close out your interview. So what song did you pick and why? Um, I just, I love this song and this kind of goes out to my friend, Tanya Soriano. She's probably not listening, but maybe I'll send her the, the podcast afterwards. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Um, but this song just kind of reminds me of, uh, it's just very joyful, very happy, very happy song. And it's called uh, uh, Ja Se Namora, and it's by Os Tribalistas, they're a Brazilian band. And uh, one of the singers is one of my favorite singers. Her name is um, Marisa Monchi. And so, yeah, Ja Se Namora. I know how to fall in love. All right. Yeah, so that's a request of our guest, Jason. Thank you so much for being on the air with us. Thanks for having me. All right, and Inspiration Dissemination will be back next week, but listen to this song and enjoy KBVR Corvallis. <laughs> 